On this episode of Common Mystics, we relate the harrowing events surrounding the second great fire in the history of the Windy City. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are Common Mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today's story takes us to Chicago, Illinois. Yay! I love this story. It feels like home, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it is home. And how we found it was very special. Mm. It was March 27th, 2023. It was. And we had just visited mom, grandma, Jeannie, grandpa in Resurrection Cemetery right outside of Chicago in Justice, Illinois. True. And on Instagram, you guys, I posted a little video of us pouring drinks for them to celebrate our book. Yay. And that's when we set our intention. Jennifer, will you remind everyone what are our intentions? We asked the spirits to lead us to a verifiable story previously unknown to us that allowed us to give voice to the voiceless. That's right. I was seeing in my head the Jungle Book, Mm -hmm. like the animated movie from Disney. Mm -hmm. Like with that kid swinging from the vines. That's exactly the image I saw. Interesting. Get out of my head. One adorable breadcrumb, which was an indicator that we were on the right path, was the fact that there was a Stella's restaurant. Mm, Mama. (laughs) Yeah, that's, of course, our mother's name. So we were driving along. We saw that. We knew we were heading the right direction. I, in my mind's eyes, seen pigs in a train car. Wow. And then I was seeing stockyards. I was getting a sense of the stockyards. That's very cool. Chicago was famous for the stockyards Mm. back in the day. Actually, our mom grew up in an area of the city called Back of the Yards. That's exactly right. Jennifer, what else were you picking up on? I was seeing, in my mind's eye, a monument that's on Harlem Avenue. We would pass this monument to and from Grandma's house, so it's something we know well. Mm -hmm. And so I was seeing that very familiar Chicago monument in my head. And I was experiencing having it hard to breathe. I think the two of us were having that conversation about a fire and like our throats felt itchy. Yes. I wrote down in the notes, fire, burning building, and smoke. The Mm -hmm. notes for this one is so funny because part of the time I'm (laughs) writing the notes, which is like scribble, and then Jennifer's like (laughs) making sense of them once she's not driving. It was really funny notes. Uh It's funny. Jennifer, what will our research tell us about the story? Well, our research took us to the Chicago stockyards. Why not start there? And I just want to say this. We got this information from WTTW Chicago. I always wanted to say that. And also Wikipedia. And also Wikipedia. But WTTW Chicago. Okay, Jen, stockyards, what were they? So the Union stockyards were located in Chicago, Illinois, and were the epicenter of the nation's meatpacking industry for more than 100 years. And it was here that millions of farm animals were transported hundreds and hundreds of miles to the city of Chicago, where they were held for slaughter and processing at the stockyards. For generations, Chicago was known as the hog butcher of the world. I'm so glad that we lost that moniker because the Windy (laughs) City, so much better. That's better. Also, Second city, Second I heard that. Second city, yep. Pie town, Chi-town. 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 Um, <laughs> and then 
the city of big shoulders. I just I felt like that was like a, a dig on me. So I never uh, really liked it. Mm-hmm. Can you relate to that? Uh, too much. Too much. <laughs> You know what? Honestly, what it makes the sausage king of Chicago on Ferris Bueller make sense, like more sense now that the guy was like, "You're the sausage king of Chicago," right? Well, yeah, yeah. Chicago was known for meat, pig meat. How did Chicago become the hog butcher of the world? Jill, this is so freaking interesting. I never knew this. Tell me. So back in the very, very early days when Chicago was just emerging as a major city, the tavern owners would have their own pastures and they would raise and tend to their own cattle herds and then sell them. It's like farm to table. Exactly. So trendy. So bougie. So So bougie nowadays. We did it first. Okay, go on. Yes, exactly. Now, with the advent of the railroads, however... More and more small stockyards started popping up in and around the city of Chicago. It must have smelled great. Ugh. From 1852 to 1865, there were five different railroads that made their way to Chicago. And that, of course, influenced the locations of these new stockyards. And some railroad companies even built their own. Okay. That makes sense, right? Yeah, of course. Chicago's still known for the railroads around the city. For sure. If you have a stockyard that's tied to a railroad, it just makes bringing the animals in and the processed products out that much more efficient. Looking at pictures of the stockyards in Chicago, you can tell that the lifeblood, the arteries of that situation were the railroad going through. Absolutely. Bringing the animals in, sending the meat out. Right. Aside from the growth of the railroads, another reason for the stockyard boom in Chicago was the demand of meat during the last part of the American Civil War. Who knew? Never knew. So there was a blockade on the Mississippi River. Okay. And so because of that, north to south trade basically came to a standstill. Now, the U.S. government needed to feed the northern troops. That was a big Mm. job. And they had bought these huge quantities of cattle and pigs so that they could feed their troops. The problem was, because the Mississippi was locked down, there were very few options for processing the meat out west. And so the government made use of the facilities already in place in Chicago. And so during Mm. the 1864-1865 winter butchering season, which was the last winter of the Civil War, the Chicago stockyards processed over 1,400,000 hogs. A lot of bacon. Mm-hmm. Which was up from only about 400,000 hogs in 1860. So that is a huge boom. That's insane. Right? That's insane. Now, just around that same oh. time in 1864, the railroads got together. So responding to this big Chicago meat boom, a consortium of nine railroad companies developed what came to be called the Union Stockyards. And it was designed to consolidate all of those small little plants into one large efficient operation that would link the meat packing industry to the railroad lines. It really was something to see. I'm going to post something on our Instagram page because it is huge, this amount of square feet that the stockyards in Chicago occupied. And it looked like a very well laid out operation, which is terrible because we're talking it was a small town. Yes, absolutely. But it's terrible because it really is an operation just to 
kill the animals. You know what I mean? So it kind of sucks. Well, to kill and process and feed people. Well, yeah, yes, but, but it must so. have been horrific. See, I'm the kind of person I don't want to know how my burger got no. in front of me. I don't want to no. know about the hot dog. I'm going to eat it. I'm I'm going to eat it. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to know their backstory. Exactly. I, that's why I don't like fishing. I don't no, want this, this no, no, no. animal looking at me in the eyes while exactly. Chad's like, well, let's clean it. And that's just a lot of work. <laughs> exactly. It's just so much work. Right, right, right. Anyway, the stockyards continue to grow over the years, propelled by advancements in railroad transport and refrigerated rail cars. You know what's interesting about the United States is that we have one of the best infrastructures for freight, but shitty infrastructure for like sending humans on trains. Is that right? Yeah, it's true. I love it. By 1921, the stockyards employed 40,000 people and occupied more than a square mile of Chicago's South Side. Ridiculous. From 39th Street to 47th Street and from Halsted to Ashland. Chicago had become the meat processing center of the world. And we have a very strong connection to these streets. That's literally our mother's neighborhood. It's crazy. Stay tuned for the detours because we're going to get personal, guys, (laughs) about this neighborhood and about how if the stockyards never existed in Chicago, Jennifer and I wouldn't be here. That is a true statement. So dramatic. So check that out on Patreon on our detours. What tiers? Tiers two and above. Thanks. So here you have the city of Chicago, and right on the south side, you have animal pens and barns and slaughterhouses and different facilities for processing meat and distributing meat products. The stockyard played a crucial role in the meat manufacturing history, and it was major for the city of Chicago during the 19th and 20th centuries. That makes sense. So this is a big deal. Chicago, there is meat packing happening all around us. <laughs> How did it like... Because it's they're not there anymore. Like, where did it go? There was a decline in the stockyards. After World War II, transportation and distribution practices began to change. And it mm. became cheaper to raise and slaughter animals in the same location rather than transporting them to one large hub in Chicago. Right. So th- the whole process changed. The industry became decentralized. And that's when the Chicago stockyards began to fade. When you were saying for generations they were shipping animals into Chicago, I didn't want to say anything. But I was like, there was an easier way, folks. But at the time, right? Right. Go on. And the Chicago stockyards were officially closed in 1971. Damn, that's later than I thought. Can you tell me what the conditions were like to work in the stockyards around, I don't know, the turn of the century, early 1900s? I re- Can I just tell you, I really don't want to know, but I'm doing it for the story. It's in the outline. Okay? You have to ask me I'm that question. I'm doing it for the story. Oh. You can imagine the workers had very long hours. Many of them started around 3 a.m. Oh, God. And, of course, the job demanded a lot of physical exertion. People had to herd the cattle and slaughter the animals and then process the meat for distribution. And, of course, this work was grueling and it was often performed in cramped and unsanitary conditions. I just want to say when I was working at a fast food restaurant, I could never eat there. <laughs> I know. You know what I mean? Yes. I would talk. Where like, did you there's work? There's no way. I can't. I don't want to say oh, it. Was it a burger place? 
Yes, exactly. Okay. So, like, you would have the smell. Yes, yes, yes. Can you imagine the smell? No. <laughs> no. Yes and no. 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 Oh, my God. <laughs> no. Oh. And the flies. Stop oh. it right now. <laughs> You're the one who told me to talk about this shit. I told you I didn't want to go here. Okay, also, safety. It may be nasty, but the safety was, like, top-notch, right? <laughs> so, at least you can rely on the safety conditions around the facilities. You're hysterical. Safety was an afterthought. Oh. Because it was a very fast-paced environment. Yeah, you have animals running for their lives. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fuck yeah, it was. Workers, yeah, no, workers faced a lot of hazards, and there were really no <laughs> safeguards or regulations in place at the time. And the workers lacked proper protective gear, and so many of them were vulnerable <laughs> to injury and illness. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's just nasty. Oh, So handling livestock presented some constant, <laughs> constant risks. I can, I'm just seeing a bullfighter in my head for some reason, right? Well, they're huge animals. Pigs and cows yeah. are huge, massive animals. And pigs can be mean. No, they are mean. Yeah. And if they get agitated or frightened, they could trample you to death for sure. Wait a second. Jen, on the detours and make a, a note of this, we need to tell Dennis's father's story about the pig. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. Mom. Okay. Continue. And pigs are mean story. Mom and pigs are mean story. <laughs> That's so far the outline for our detours. <laughs> okay. Continue. Okay. So handling livestock was a problem, you say. Contained a little bit of risk. <laughs> it wasn't fun and it wasn't safe. And it was probably really messy. If it was fun, you're going to get your heart broken. Like if you met an animal you really liked and it was like, oh, fun flower, flower. Jill, there was no time to have a relationship with any of these animals. That's probably good. They probably did it purposely to save people from broken hearts. Do not get to know the animals. <laughs> yeah, do not get to know the animals. No petting, <laughs> no nuzzling, yeah. no snuggling. <laughs> oh, nuzzling. Do not snuggle Aww. the animals. I would nuzzle a cow for sure. I could see that happening. <laughs> They might not like it. So accidents were not uncommon, and there were a lot of serious injuries and deaths at the stockyards. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Furthermore, Jill, and this brings us to More our story. Hazard? Yes. Fire. More Fire hazard. was oh, a particular hazard. Chicago. How many times do we have to go through this? In the Chicago, on, Chicago Union stockyards. It was all made of wood. It was a combination of flammable materials like hay mm -hmm. and manure. Am I saying that right? Is it Man manure? No. Manure? That was How do you very, say it? very manure. Manure. Hay yeah, and manure. But you're like manure. <laughs> like you were like French for a moment. I was like, wee oui, wee. Oui. Wee oui, wee, oui, are you talking to and me? And also, chemicals that were needed for processing the meat were also flammable. Oof. But that whole labyrinth, that town of structures, was not well constructed. No. Like, they were rickety wooden structures. Yeah, you're not going to spend a lot of time on a building where you're going to slit exactly. and hurt animals, right? No reason to be gruesome. Well, I'm just saying. And also, they had massive amounts of dry goods, Along with the absence of stringent safety measures, it was a ticking time bomb, or to be a little more precise, a tinderbox. Wow. So December 21st, 1910, tell me what was on the minds of the local fire chief. Fire Chief James Horan recognized the potential for catastrophe at the stockyards. 
And he went before the city council and he argued for a more modern, high pressure water system that firefighters could rely on to put out fires in the stockyards. Just weeks before, he had even written a letter urging action of the city council members. However, at the time of December 21st, 1910, no action had been taken by the city council to improve water flow to the meatpacking district. Apparently, the water flow issue had been a cause for Chief Haran for the past eight years beforehand. Eight years. Wow. Eight years and had been championing for better water pressure. Chief Haran's concerns were not unfounded. And unfortunately, as fate would have it, things were going to get real pretty quickly. Tell me about December 22nd, just a day later, hours later, 1910. Just a day after Chief Haran argued in front of the city council, a night watchman noticed smoke coming from Warehouse 7 of the Morris Street Storage House on the 4300 block of South Loomis Street. The night watchman traced the smoke to the basement, and he went downstairs to investigate. He opened the door to a storeroom containing animal hides. And immediately, Jill, a gust of smoke and flames pushed him back, and he turned and ran. But it was four o'clock in the morning, and it was dark, and he stumbled and fell several times before he finally made his way to the first floor and triggered the alarm. That would so be me. A hundred percent, that would be me. I would like broke my arm, broke my leg, and then be crawling to the alarm. As it happens, just at that same exact moment, some unknown person a block away also witnessed the smoke and flames from a distance and triggered the alarm box. And both of these initial alarms rang out at exactly 4.09 a.m. Now, remember, people were already at work on site at the stockyards when this flame ignited. That's exactly right. Now, several fire engine companies sprang into action, and when they arrived at the scene only minutes later, the entire basement and first floor of the building were engulfed in flames, and the rest of the building was filled with dense, toxic clouds of smoke. Firemen have the worst jobs. Thank you, firemen. So what's interesting about this fire on December 22nd, 1910 at the Chicago Union Stockyards was that it presented some very unique challenges for these firefighters. What do you mean by that? Well, the Morris Street Storage House, where the fire broke out, was situated so that it was completely blocked on three sides by adjacent buildings. And so the only way for the firefighters to effectively access the burning building was from the east side, which was Loomis Street. Mm -hmm. But Loomis wasn't really a street. It had a railway area and there were tracks that were packed with partially loaded railway cars. Oh, my So God. don't think of a street as a street where the firefighters could just bring their wagons and pump water. You're thinking of a railway yard. You have to climb over, get under. Yes. So there was a string of cars there and a 15-foot wide raised platform, which 
served usually to facilitate the loading of the cars from the building. So you imagine right. a, a railway platform. You know, when you take the train, you stand on it. It's it's a raised platform. I have. Yeah. So that stood between the line of railway cars and the building. And so, like you said, in order to access the burning building, the firefighters had to climb over or crawl under the railway cars and then climb up onto the platform in order to enter the building, all while dragging their hoses with them. And wearing their gear. Exactly. Oh, my. Now, there's more. There's more? Further complicating matters was an old wooden canopy that covered the railway cars and the platform. And under normal circumstances, the canopy would protect the workers from the elements while they were loading the railway cars. But with the fire burning, this canopy served to trap in all of the smoke and the toxic chemicals and the heat, making conditions even more treacherous in the only area where the firefighters could get to the building. Oh, my gosh. Hang in there, guys. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to unveil the first book in our series entitled Common Mystics Present Ghost on the Road, Volume 1, Murders and Mysterious Deaths. It's everything you love about Common Mystics and more. It's a retelling of 10 of our favorite stories from our pod with exciting extras. Extras like souvenirs, what we took away from the experience, and what to know if you go if you decide to travel in our footsteps. Pre-order the Kindle edition now. All other formats of the book will be available for purchase at Amazon.com on July 1st, 2023. Thanks, guys. Now back to the show. Okay. To be honest, you know what I'm thinking in my head is that this isn't long after the Great Chicago Fire. Was that 1890s? 1870. So this is about, yeah, about 40, 39, 40 years after the Great Chicago Fire. So these people living in Chicago, like at first when you were describing this horrible scene, my thought would be like, fuck it, let it burn. Mm. But they literally had just two generations before had just been through the Great Chicago Fire. So they were probably really taking this. Of course, they were taking this seriously, but also had that special sort of responsibility to the city to make sure the whole city didn't catch on fire. Well, remember what the stockyards were, a very densely packed square mile of poorly constructed shacks full of chemicals and dry goods. This is bad. This is bad. This is bad. This is bad. But like I said, in my jilly brain, I'd be like, nope, evacuate. (laughs) True. So... At 4.42 a.m., Assistant Fire Marshal Burroughs, who was on the scene, sounded another alarm. And this one categorized the fire as a four-alarm fire and called additional companies of firefighters to the scene. So it had grown during that 30-something minutes, and now it's a four-alarm fire. So what does that mean? That means that now more companies of firefighters are coming to the scene. And among them is Fire Chief Horan, the same fire chief who the day before was arguing for a better water system. Mm. Chief Horan and Fire Marshal Burroughs are the two leaders in charge. And they fought the smoke and the flames on that burning platform side by side with their men. And the newspapers talk a lot about these two men in that they weren't the type of leaders who gave orders and then stood back in safety. 
they were leading their men into this inferno. They're really heroes. Firefighters from eight different companies were scattered across that platform that I described. And they battled the blazing flames at their faces with the half-loaded railway cars at their backs. There'd be no way to run. They were literally trapped. And above them, Jill, thousands of pounds of bricks that made up the walls of the Morris Street storage house. Then comes the most dramatic event of the entire day. There's more dramatic events. This is pretty dramatic. This is backdraft situation. Suddenly, there was an explosion. It was thought to be caused by ammonia and or meat pickling agents in saltpeter. The thunderous discharge tossed the firefighters' bodies and burnt debris violently outward and knocked the string of railway cars over onto their sides. Oh, my God. It was then that the men heard a dull roar as a six-story wall crashed to the ground. The firefighters working on and below the wooden canopy above the platform were instantly crushed. Oh, my God. And pinned in place by the platform and the thousands of pounds of bricks. The remaining walls of the building swayed precariously as hogsheads and barrels of pickled meat crashed down into the ruins. Dozens of the frantic firefighters then rushed to rescue those trapped beneath the rubble. But Jill, the bricks were so hot that if they picked up a brick with their hands, their hands would be instantly burned through their heavy gloves before they could even drop the bricks. Oh, my God. Any rescue attempts were futile at this time. And without the wall, the fire was fed with fresh air. And so it blazed even more fiercely than before. Um, okay. Reinforcements. <laughs> you okay? You okay? Reinforcements were called. Re- yes, they yes. were. Reinforcements. What do we got? Were called and additional fire companies arrived. How many? In all, 50 engine companies and seven hook and ladder companies were called to the scene. For hours, the men valiantly drove back the flames, which were fueled by the wind and the animal fat and the grease-soaked wood. Oh, my God. I didn't even think of that. Despite their heroic efforts, the fire took hold of the surrounding buildings, causing a massive blaze that lit up the Chicago skyline. It was finally fully extinguished at 6.37 a.m. on the following day, December 23rd. 26 hours. Wow. It makes me want to rethink my jerky obsession. Because why? <laughs> because because your jerky was processed in 1910 in the Chicago stockyards. This sounds terrible, and they're talking about pickled salted meat. Oh yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. You you should feel bad. <laughs> it's so close to home. You know how many times I've opened up that salty delight. So there are obviously so many injuries and many casualties, but some people in the blast did come out alive. Tell me how. How can that be possible? I don't believe you. There was a Lieutenant Mackey. I love this story. (laughs) Tell me. Lieutenant Mackey wasn't a firefighter per se. He was Chief Haran's chauffeur. He had driven the chief to the fire that morning. Yeah, because Chief Haran was in bed 
Like, mm. he was at home, so he had to get his driver. Yeah, so his chauffeur drove him. And Lieutenant Mackey, the chauffeur, was told to climb up on top of the canopy to assess the situation. Apparently, he was near the chief when the catastrophic blast occurred, but the force of the explosion propelled him out of range of the falling bricks. Wow. And so his leg was broken and he was badly bruised, but he was safe from the collapse and he ended up living. Oh, that's amazing. Can we talk about the fact that he was a driver and someone told him to get up on top of the platform and check out the burning building and report back? Yeah. Like if you were a driver, what would you have done? Um, it's bad. I can tell you from here. Like what <laughs> like why do I need to climb up there? Like shit's on fire, bro. <laughs> Still burning. Like what does that even mean? Oh my god. You know that to me just goes to show that they were outnumbered. Like the fire had them. They were asking everybody to help. Yeah. All hands on deck. Wow. Tell me another story of someone who was saved by the blast. Captain McGrath was a firefighter, and he was blown to the edge of the debris field when the blast occurred. And he lay there with a fractured leg unnoticed for some time because he was completely camouflaged by the dirt and the soot before he was found and treated for his injuries. Oh, my God. Okay, here's another one. Lieutenant Berkeley was another firefighter. During the explosion, he was blown off the platform underneath a railway car and he was knocked out. Wow. And when he came to lying dazed under a railway car, he crawled out and went back to work fighting the fire. Mm-mm-mm. Two hours later, he was seen still stunned, but holding onto a hose. My goodness. Very heroic. All these men are extremely heroic. However, I have to give you some bad news. This whole story has been bad news, Jennifer. And including, I'm rethinking my jerky. So there were some notable deaths, unfortunately. Captain Dennis Doyle was captain of Company 39. His son, Nicholas Doyle, was a truck man for Company 18. And both men, unfortunately, were crushed on the platform that day. Absolutely terrible for them and their families. Father and son. It's just horrible. Also, Fire Chief James Horan and Fire Marshal William Burroughs, two of the leaders on the scene, were initially reported missing and later reported dead. They were killed by the collapsed wall. Both were lauded as brave leaders who valiantly led their men into the blaze. Now, remember Lieutenant Mackey, Chief Horan's chauffeur? I do. He was very near Chief Horan at the time that the wall crashed down, and he reported that Marshal Burroughs said to Chief Horan, you better back down, Chief. But Horan paid no heed to that warning. And when the wall came crashing down, the chief was heard saying, look out, men. But the words were hardly out of his mouth before both he and Burroughs were gone. If you guys are interested, you can check out the victims on Find a Grave. If you go to Find a Grave and just type that in, you'll see their pictures. And just looking at them... You see their faces and how much life they had in front of them. And to just jump into this to this situation is ridiculous. And it's, it, it summons bravery that I wouldn't ever be able to display. Truly. Jennifer, 
How did it start? Do we have any indication about what ignited this deadly blaze? The cause of the fire was believed to be faulty electrical wiring in the warehouse. Now, that's some bullshit. How did it get so out of control? Well, aside from the very difficult conditions that the firemen faced, the water pipes were shut off at the Morris plant to prevent freezing. Ooh, what? Yeah, the pipes were shut off because it was December and they were worried that the pipes would burst altogether if they froze. But not only that, the fire hydrants throughout the city had been shut off to prevent freezing as well. And as we know from Chief Haran, the water pressure was weak. He had been complaining that the water supplies had been insufficient for years. And so in response to his complaints, the city sent out an engineer to check on the pipes and the pipes that were actually flowing through the stockyards, Mm -hmm. they weren't leaking and they were working at full capacity. They had full pressure. The problem was, is that there wasn't enough piping. And that is what Chief Haran had been advocating for for eight years. Not only that, Jennifer, I have something else to tell you about some fuckery. The city of Chicago had been on a site visit to the facility and had issued corrective actions to the stockyards and different owners of the buildings to correct some of their faulty wiring. (gasps) That was in May 1910. Did they correct the faulty wiring? No. And as a matter of fact, about 10 days before the fire ignited, the city of Chicago went back to the stockyards and were like, hey, remember that thing we told you to correct? You still haven't done it. Wow. Yeah. That's about a lot of bullshit. Tell me about the aftermath of the fire. The 1910 Union Stockyard Fire was one of the largest and deadliest fires in Chicago's history, claiming the lives of 21 firefighters and leaving many more injured. This tragic event marked a turning point in fire safety regulations and brought about significant changes also in the livestock industry. So in 2004, a memorial to all the Chicago firefighters who had perished in the line of duty was erected. Mm. The memorial was created at the urging of Chicago firefighters who helped raise 75% of the $170,000 cost for a statue. At the time, it was dedicated to the names of 530 deceased firefighters that were carved in the base of the monument. Oh, So that monument was built to honor all firefighters who had ever died fighting fires in the city of Chicago. In the line of duty before 1980. Which would include the 1910 fire at the Chicago Stockyards. Correct. This is a tragic situation, but it feels like the men who perished had all had a voice. Yeah. Why are we talking about this? Part of me wants to celebrate Chief Haran because... He knew this was going to happen, and he fought and fought and fought for better water pressure, but things wouldn't change until after his death. So I will say that I want to give him a voice, but I also acknowledge that he's had a voice. If you look back at the newspapers, his courage and his his foresight is all celebrated. And so he really has had a voice. So you tell me, Jill, is there someone else that you think has not been celebrated? 
I did find someone, Jennifer. Oh, I knew it. Please. <laughs> Please share. It's what I do. It's what I do. His name was Stephen Lean. Who was Stephen Lean? He was a civilian that perished in the fire, too. Wait a minute. A civilian, meaning he was not a firefighter. Correct. But he was there in the blaze. That's right. Can you explain this? So Stephen was someone who worked for the railroad. And as we said earlier, this was a really bad situation, and it was all hands on deck. And even though they were evacuating the civilians out of the area, and some of the other workers of the stockyard and the railroads would call each other and be like, don't go into work today. Stephen Mm -hmm. was someone who remained on the scene and stood shoulder to shoulder with those firemen trying to fight the fire. Wow. Incredible. Because he could have left as soon as the first alarm was raised. Right. Because there were two points in the fire. This fire sparked in the basement of the warehouse. Yes. And initially, the firemen were on the scene and they turned on the pipes within a few and they put out the initial fire in the basement. However, there were still embers that were lit without them knowing. So when they walked upstairs and they're like, we're all good, the fire ignited again in a huge way. And instead of leaving, he was still there and remained on site fighting that fire until the rest of the reinforcements came. So tell me about Stephen Lean. Who exactly was he? Stephen Lean, he was a 16-year-old messenger boy who worked for the Chicago Junction Railroad. He was born to Irish immigrants Patrick and Marie Roach Lean on the 18th of September, 1894. His life was nestled in the heart of the Chicago area, specifically at 513 West 42nd Place. He was the eldest among his siblings. The children shared a multilingual household, speaking both Irish and English, a testament to their rich heritage. Stephen's life was intricately woven with the rhythms of rail tracks and the hustle of the stockyards. His father, a railroad clerk, and his younger brothers, future railroad employees, shared that connection. Stephen's story, however, turned tragic on December 22, 1910, when we believe he bravely fought to help contain the blaze shoulder to shoulder with the firefighters. The young boy with an Irish name meaning Little Star was tragically extinguished in the fire at the Nelson Morris Warehouse Number no. 7. The building standing between 43rd and 44th Streets and Loomis was consumed by one of the most devastating fires in Chicago history, taking our little star with it. Wow. So how did you learn about Stephen Lean? Was he written about in the paper? He was written about in the paper, but he was not honored as a hero who stood the line with the professional fire, with the professional heroes, I would say. I see. And the information about his choices and his actions during that fire, those are coming not from accounts in the newspaper, but from your psychic intuition, correct? The accounts in the newspaper say that he was a civilian killed. And that's it. That's it. Got it. But me researching who he was, where he worked, I had 
gotten factual information that he worked for the railway. I had gotten factual information about the time in which he would have been reporting to work. Got it. And the fact that the way the fire was ignited with those two ignitions, those two sparks, he had time to leave. There was no reason for him to be there. And evidence of that is that he's the only known civilian. Mm. Everyone else was long the fuck gone. Well, yeah. And no shame in that game. I wouldn't even know. I would have been gone too, but not Steven. 16-year-old Steven stood there and helped where he could the firemen. So I'm glad that we're giving 16-year-old Steven a voice. Do you like his little eulogy? I do. Well done, Jill. Thank you for writing Thank you. So let's talk about how we got here. Let's transition to the hits. Jennifer, hit me up. What do we got? Jill, I'm a little stumped by this whole Disney Jungle Book reference. Can you enlighten me on what on earth that has to do with the story? Jennifer James. (laughs) Yes. Yes, Jill Stanley. (laughs) It turns out that The Jungle is a fictional novel by an American author, Upton Sinclair, known for his efforts to expose corruption in government and business in the early 20th century. It was Sinclair in 1904 who worked several weeks gathering information while incognito in the meat packaging plants of Chicago. Yes. He wrote The Jungle based on the stockyards. Exactly. It was meant to draw attention to the horrendous conditions in the stockyards. So the fact that you were seeing The Jungle Book is a freaking amazing hit. That is so crazy. And I remember when I found it, when I was looking in the newspaper, or I was reading about the history of the stockyards and I was like, holy shit. And I like FaceTimed you and you were like, yeah, I read it. I'm like, I've never heard of that in my life. That's so crazy. That what is 100% about crazy. When we were on the road and we saw Estella's restaurant and we knew we were in the right place because Stella is our mother and she was kind of telling us, hey, girls, you're you're mm-hmm. on it. Well, not only that, Jennifer, our mom's name, Stella, means little star, just like Stephen's Irish translation. Mm -hmm. There's another mom connection to this story, too. There is. You want to tell the people? The fire started on December 22nd, which happens to be our mother's birthday. Mm, That's so crazy. So not only was it a breadcrumb, but it was actually taking symbolisms from their story. Yes, yes. They were hits as well as breadcrumbs. Yes, exactly. And when you were seeing pigs transported by rail, that seems to be pretty, pretty obvious. Pretty literal. Yes, exactly. As your hit, the stockyards. Exactly. Very, very literal. Also, the fire, the difficulty breathing, the feeling Mm -hmm. of smoke and burning building, all very, very literal hits. Very, very literal. Okay. But, Jen, tell me about your Harlem monument in your mind's eye. Well, what I saw in the car was a vision of a monument that I had driven past for years. But it doesn't have anything to do with this story. Because the monument that I was thinking of is like a monument to Lewis and Clark. So what does that have to do with the story? Because the firemen in 2004 were honored by the creation, the erection of another monument. But after 1910, there's no mention of Stephen anywhere. Not on the monument in 2004. It's just that he died in the 1910 fire. He's not honored at all. Wow. So the monument is significant because it's a metaphor for the fact 
that many were honored, but one at least was not. That's right. Wow. Oof. Conclusion. In conclusion, um, <laughs> did not know about this fire at all, by the way, even though not only are we from Chicago, but our mom like lived on these streets. Never knew no. that this ever happened. And it is known, by the way, as the second great Chicago fire, because it was the, the second great Chicago fire <laughs> after the first one in the 1870s. So, bam. So bad on us. We're bad Chicagoans. <laughs> Do you want to tell the people where they can find us? Oh, my gosh, you guys. Yes. Continue to email us at commonmystics at gmail. Check out our website at commonmystics.net. Find us on all the socials at Common Mystics Podcast. Listen in wherever you're hearing your favorite pods. And wherever you're listening, please leave us a positive review and also like, subscribe, and share us with your friends. Yay. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Bye.